Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivani. Patient education is of special interest of ours at Osmosis. And so today on Raise the Line, we're looking forward to hearing from Dr. David Keynes, a urologist whose passion for patient education led him to develop WellPrepped, a doctor-to-patient content delivery platform that increases patient engagement and reduces physician burnout. Dr. Keynes is based at the Leahy Hospital Medical Center Institute of Urology and specializes in urological cancers and robotic surgery. He's also an associate professor of urology at Tufts University School of Medicine. And before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to RaiseLine guest, Aaron Fritz, Dr. Aaron Fritz uh, of the Backtable Innovation Podcast and Urology Podcast, who first introduced me to David. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Shiv. This is great. So as you know, a lot of our audience are current and future healthcare professionals, many of them likely going into urology or digital health and education. Um, for their sake, uh, would you mind giving us a bit about your background? What got you interested in medicine and then urology and then ultimately patient education? Okay. So the um, the longest story short, is I was born in South Africa and um, my parents immigrated to Canada when I was just an infant. Um, and then from there to New York, where I grew up for most of my life, there were no physicians in the family. I, I sort of had a fascination with becoming a doctor when I was very little. I remember going to the pediatrician and being amazed that they could figure out what was going on, going on with me, even though it was something simple, <laughs> like a sore throat. So that was in the back of my mind the whole time I went to college and was a fairly typical pre-med student based on an interest in, in science. And uh, what sealed the deal for me was a volunteer uh, stint in the pediatric ER uh, at Yale New Haven Hospital. And there was clearly a satisfaction that you could directly get from the one-on-one -on -one patient interaction. I could see that. I sort of had a sense that all jobs must have frustrations, but at least you could go home at the end of the day with a sense of purpose. And that th that solidified things for me. And then as I moved through medical school, you know, you're dumped into gross anatomy in the first week. And it, I was one of these anatomy nerds who, who stayed after till like midnight uh, dissecting. I, I was completely enraptured with the whole gross anatomy thing. And, it, and so it was very clear that surgery versus medicine fork in the road that a lot of decisions are usually difficult for me. I, I, waffle back and forth and I vacillate, but that, that one was like clear as day. I want to be a surgeon, no question. And then it, it became a, a navigation to urology somewhat fortuitously. I met a lot of really influential mentors who were down to earth. You know, you can't go into urology because of uh, any cocktail party prestige, you know. <laughs> you know, we deal with a lot of problems that can be solved, very gratifying, and, um, and so the rest is history. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, it's definitely a field that I've a number of uh, connections to. Uh, my mother, who's actually on the Back Table Urology podcast, Vanita Gaglani, is a physical therapist who specializes in post-prostatectomy urinary incontinence, among other things. Uh, so she was a guy, Dr. Patel in Orlando, who's pretty well known for robotic yeah, surgery. Yeah, Patel, he's fantastic. And then Patrick Welch was a mentor uh, at Hopkins. Um, and he's obviously, you know, I think helped refine the prostatect radical prostatectomy procedure in the first place. Yeah, he made some key insights that made the operation that we do today possible. 
Amazing. So it's definitely a very interesting uh, field. And people talk about the surgical, the instant gratification. Now, what got you interested in, in patient education as a, as, a, as a potential field? And then give us the story behind starting Well Prepped. Yeah, sure. So I, I've always loved um, teaching. My mother was a teacher. I don't know if that rubbed off in, in some way, but I, I, I've always, you know, tutored other students and, you know, I, I've, developed ways of explaining complicated things in, 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 in a manner that tends to resonate. Um, and I think doctors by nature, many of us are teachers. I, I think when you look at the one-on-one -on -one doctor patient sitting in an exam room face-to-face, -face, there is a lot of teaching that goes on. And my exam rooms all have whiteboards. And if there's no whiteboard, I'm writing on the crinkly paper on the bed. And um, it, it's just part and parcel of, of what I do. Um, you know, as far as what happened leading to well prepped, as you know, a lot of these things are clear in, in retrospect and, and in advance, this, the narrative is not always like this, but, um, back in 2015, 2016, I was, I was burnt out and I managed to say engaged in the OR. And, um, so I wasn't completely disconnected, but I found myself in clinic uh, feeling disconnected. And, you know, I think there's a lot of other doctors like me who really love the making a connection with another human being who, who needs your help. And that is, there's nothing quite like that. But if you are repetitively explaining things, you enter like an autopilot cruise control type of mindset. And that is a disconnect. You're no longer in the moment. It's like one step removed. And I noticed that about myself and it really bothered me a lot. Um, and I made a, I was not trying to start a company, but I was just trying to fix my own problem. And I downloaded the NCCN guide for prostate cancer. I see a lot of prostate cancer. They, they have an incredible PDF guide for patients. And I said to my secretary, hey, you know, anytime a patient is coming for prostate cancer, can you please email this beforehand? And not everyone read it, but the ones who did, the visits were just a little bit better. And um, the conversation was higher level. It was more personal. There was room to discuss more interesting things. And so I took it to another level. I, I recorded myself very low budget explaining robotic prostatectomy. Now I'm going to my secretary and I'm saying, okay, send them this link to the PDF and the video, which is already getting cumbersome. And she obliged and the visits were even better. And so there was no sort of epiphany, but I, I, I do remember, um, you know, this whole proliferation of link in bio. So for example, the osmosis Instagram, uh, profile, you guys have a link in bio and this is now like a, probably at least a several hundred million, if not a billion dollar industry now proliferating because people want one URL to change into multiple links. And when I saw that, uh, I thought, geez, you know, I could use something like that for my educational resources because easier for my secretary, send one link and I can organize my resources. So I, I capitalized on that. If you could say there was a prototype for well prep, that, that was it. I made a sort of, it, maybe it's a stretch to call it an MVP, but it sort of is an MVP uh, and then I reached out to about 10 colleagues at other hospitals and I built 
pages for them, these little prototypes. And I said, you know, would you try this out in your clinic? And like any workflow change, it's not for everyone. A few of them were tickled that I made that for them and they never used it again, but enough doctors tried it and they loved it. And a few of them printed their business cards with their QR code on it. And it worked its way into their workflow. And at that point, I thought to myself, all right, now I'm not just scratching my own itch. There's other people like me for whom this may really, may really help. And at that point, I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to actually hire a software team. I wish I had coding experience, but I don't. <laughs> well, that's amazing. That's uh, I mean, it's very classic kind of founder led story, solving your own problem. Uh, doing things that don't scale, which is a famous essay, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator yep. wrote where you're sending out links and videos and ultimately the platform. So give us right. a sense of the well-prepped uh, traction to date. Is it all urology or you have content across different specialties? And wh where do you yeah. see it in the next, you know, let's say one year or five years? Yeah. So um, one of the insights that I had early on that was just a hypothesis was that if I handed people a blank slate that they weren't going to do a single thing with it. Um, I know how busy I am and, it, you know, it, it just wasn't going to work. So I started in urology and I, I compiled resources from all over the web. And that's the interesting thing, Shiv. One of the things that I noticed is, um, and osmo I put osmosis in this category, there are content creators who have already created brilliant content, um, subspecialty societies, NCCN, JAMA patient pages, podcasts, but there is no consistent distribution mechanism to get those in front of patients. Um, I'm not saying they don't exist completely, but there's no consistent distribution mechanism. So I compiled um, resources for every major urologic condition. So when a urologist onboards now, their pages are sort of magically preceded with content. And, and there's a few hundred urologists uh, on there now. I still consider us to be sort of pre-launch. We haven't like made some official uh, launch announcement. It's been traction mostly by word of mouth, which is also very interesting. Uh, as it turns out, this is things that doctors are ex are excited to share with other doctors. And I wasn't sure how that was going to play out. You know, are are people going to keep this as a special secret on their own, or are they going to share it? But they they tend to tell their 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 pals like hey i've been using this thing you should try it so the plan is um to roll that out in, in specialty by specialty and 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 do a similar thing that's awesome yeah and agreed like word of mouth is some of the best traction just like not raising funding but actually generating revenue by adding that by creating value for your customers for end users and then capturing a small amount of that or amount of that value is probably the best kind of startup advice i, I tend to give people showing that kind of organic yeah. traction I'm curious. So tell us about kind of like what, what metrics matter most. There's obviously number of engaged learners, there's number amount of content, uh, interactions, maybe how many times they're sent out, but like other things like, you know, in the introduction we shared, you know, provider burnout, right? So maybe some customer satisfaction that promoter scores, or I know like Emmy solutions was big in patient education. We had their former head of patient engagement, um, Jerry Bomblatt, who's wonderful. I can connect you with her at some point. She was on our podcast. And That'd be great. at the tail end of their company, which really scaled and Walter Kluwer bought them, they were measuring things like missed, uh, you know, colonoscopy prep, like what percentage of patients coming on for colonoscopy 
procedures were actually fully prepped so it wouldn't waste their time, the, the gastroenterologist time, et cetera. So what are some of the core metrics that drive you and, and that you're measuring? Yeah. So um, I think about this in terms of the, uh, on the patient side and on the provider side. On the provider side, um, there are a number of hurdles that the provider has to go through. One, they have to decide that they need help. They have to, you know, find well prep. They have to onboard, tweak the pages to their liking, and then actually start showing it to patients. The the aha moment seems to be that the patient comes back in and says, "Thank you so much for sending me that." And then the provider notices that that visit is is um, better, and so. We're tracking uh, page views, and we know that if once a provider starts sharing and the page views start climbing, they tend to keep using um, well prepped. And so we're we're still formulating dashboards, but that's one thread that we're pulling on right now because it seems to be a good measure of whether or not someone's going to stick with it on the provider side. Uh, I'm interested in figuring out if it saves time on the side of the doctor, I, I suspect, and, you know, at least anecdotally from early users, they say that it does. And then even if it doesn't save time, if the visit takes the same amount of time, but it's more engaging for both parties, that's also important. On the patient side, we can see, uh, number one, does the patient uh, visit the page more than once? Uh, do they share the page? And what's their dwell time on the page? I mean, Google Analytics makes this pretty easy to look at. And, and so far, it looks like patients are going back uh, at least twice, and they spend time uh, on the page. And so these are all, I, I, it's, it's early. This is like a baby that's just been born. Uh, but um, the, I would say the early indications are, are strong. And as you know, Shiv, uh, um, it's not for everyone. I mean, the way I, the way I look at this is what are the real uh, tools that help doctors, scribes, um, templates, um, order sets, dot phrases, uh, to use epic verbiage, those take some time to set up and not all doctors do it, right? The ones who do are, are I would characterize them as digitally engaged. And those seem to be the um, ideal customers, if you will, for, for well prep. They're already digitally engaged in other ways. That's great. And narrowing down kind of who your early adopters are. I'm sure you're familiar with the crossing the chasm framework, yeah. the early adopters, the early majority, and then, you know, obviously late majority and laggards. There's still people who don't use dictation, obviously. And some people don't like yeah. dictation as a whole, may never use it. But um, that's great. That's really exciting to, to hear about. Now, when it comes to the engaged patient, right, this is a topic I love because you know, ultimately, a lot of our goal at Osmosis, the vision is everyone who cares for someone will learn by Osmosis. So we started with medical students at Johns Hopkins, my classmates, but now the goal is to reach and educate a billion people by 2025. Clearly, there aren't a billion doctors and medical students and nursing students. It's really about patients. And we have so many stories and posts about how patients have engaged with some of the content. Now, typically, what you get when you go into patient engagement is, uh, especially with COVID now, the worry about health misinformation. Any clinician has probably had a patient come to them with the wildest theories uh, about things, uh, what they read on the internet, Dr. Google, uh, WebMD, I have brain cancer. There are all these kind of sayings. What are your thoughts on like kind of cyberchondria slash like misinformation and how we can overcome some of that while maximizing the engaged, empowered patient that actually then, you know, 
it follows through treatment protocols, takes all the antibiotics, you know, does physical therapy before and after surgery, those kind of things. Well, you know, I, my answer is going to sound a little bit biased, but I, I think if the doctor it can be involved in curating and vetting the content, and I'm not saying they have to like watch every single video from start to finish, and but doctors have a pretty good radar for what is um, appropriate patient education material. Um, this is the kind of feedback that I'm getting back from early access users of WellPrep. It's their page on atrial fibrillation, for example, and they get to pick and choose. And doctors are really good at that because it reflects on them. They're, they don't want to put uh, bad content on a page that has their name on it. So, so that's one way of tackling uh, this problem. Um, a, a little bit of a grander vision that I have is that this can be at, at scale. If this scales, then it can be crowdsourced and the best content can rise to the top. Uh, the, the content that gets the most engagement and gets shared the most will, will win. I think that's something that maybe is missing um, a little bit. Although, you know, I'm curious what you've learned from osmosis. YouTube, the cream also rises to the top on YouTube um, because people are voting with their views and their eyeballs and their watch time. It's a good point. I think it's a balance, right? Because clearly what we've seen on some of these social media platforms is sometimes the most like vitriolic or, or kind of wrong information can rise to the top just based on view count. Cause it's like, you'll never believe what happened to, uh, um, there's this famous singer, I forgot her name, but her, she's like my friends, cousins, you know, got, uh, the code vaccine and had swollen yeah. testicles, right? Like I forgot Nicki Minaj, I think it was or something. Oh, so it's just, it's so sensational. It's sensational. Oh, right. It's crazy. Yeah. So, but, but balancing that, which is why Google changed its algorithm so that for their search engine optimization, the pages that rise to the top are, um, you know, there's a additional benefit if there's actually people with degrees, NP, MD, PA, who are clearly listed as the authors of that content. So it's kind of right. balancing it. But that being said, like some of the challenge with that patients often will bring up correctly is that just because you have an MD behind your name or an NP or PA doesn't mean you know everything. Doesn't mean that science or medicine knows everything. There's a lot of things like doctors, pulmonologists used to recommend smoking 50, 60 years ago for asthma, right? And clearly that right. our view on that has changed. Cocaine, like there are all sorts of examples throughout medical history. So it's it's nuanced. It's really difficult and you know, I'm sure you're already hearing about some of these things or seeing them in, in, in practice. Yeah, I mean, um, you're right. I think there's no single answer to your question. It's not going to be one magic bullet. Um, the thing that gets me excited is if you think about the status quo of how patient education happens. Let's just take something as simple as like a, a discharge instruction form. You know, it, somebody generates a form, it goes through a form committee, it needs to be a certain reading level. It, you know, I'm not saying these things are unimportant, but it's, it's a, it, it puts up roadblocks. And in a lot of ways, it takes autonomy away from, from doctors. One solution to burnout is to empower doctors again and let them make choices, right? I mean, let them choose what they want to show their patients. They, they're, they're great at it. In, innately, they want to do good by their patients. And so um, I know that's slightly tangential to what you're asking, but involving the, the doctor again in, in, in this mix is important to me. Yeah, having the autonomy 
and control um, clearly because that's been a trend of why why there's been so much burnout and moral injury, it seems. We have so many current and future healthcare professionals. Many of them want to become surgeons like you or practicing providers or digital health entrepreneurs. What advice would you give them about kind of approaching their career, especially given all that's happened with the pandemic and um, uh, other things in society? So I, I can tell you the advice that I wish somebody had told me, Shiv. I would ask young doctors and trainees to, th- to imagine their future mid-career self. Um, we work so hard to become the, uh, the type of doctor that we want to be. We don't talk enough about what happens when you arrive there. Okay. So I can tell you, I'm right. I'm mid-career. My my practice is exactly what I want it to be. I'm busy. I'm a busy surgeon. I love taking care of patients. Fortunately, most of the time the outcomes are good. But uh, what people don't tell you is that some of the decision making uh, is not as challenging at at a certain point. And I don't remember being told this. And I, I don't want this to sound c- cynical, but if I say this is going to sound strong, the the fallacy of lifelong learning, and that may seem taboo to say that, we do have lifelong learning, but it is not as steep of a learning curve as it is in the beginning. When you're in medical school, it's a huge learning curve. It's very exciting. Same thing in residency uh, and early career. But mid-career, while there are in advancement in every field, those are incremental and not all that intellectually challenging to absorb when you have a massive fund of knowledge. And again, I'm not trying to minimize. We still have challenging surgical cases every now and then. But um, you have to think about this early on because we're all as a breed of doctors hungry for learning. We love learning new things. And part of what I love about the entrepreneurial route is I've had to learn so much. I mean, I'm consuming books and podcasts at 3x speed in every commute and every moment of my day. And I love it. It doesn't feel like work. Um, And that's not for everyone. But I I would encourage young doctors to think, what's it going to be for me that keeps me interested mid-career? Is it going to be teaching? Is it going to be research? Because those are good solutions. Is it going to be hospital committee work, administrative work, entrepreneurial side pursuits? Those are all things that keep people invigorated when the clinical stuff is just not as challenging anymore. Still very important and at the core of what we do. So I hope that didn't come across too negative, but I think you see what I mean. I think that's great advice. And I mean, certainly it's one of the reasons why when people rush through just to finish to get to the destination, you know, six-year medical program out of high school, a lot of times they'll, they'll regret it later on because they didn't actually explore these other interests in entrepreneurship or in research. And, and they'll come back and do an MBA later or things like that, MPH. So I think that's really valid advice is to keep people, make our, our learners aware that they should have other things outside of clinical medicine that keep them engaged and, and learning. Yeah. I mean, the thing that keeps me in my, in my primary job keeps me invigorated is the teaching of patient care is at the core, but the teaching is new every year because people are coming at it fresh and that's awesome. It's very exciting. I just think people need to give some thought to this uh, very early because it's hard to suddenly wake up at age 45 or 50 and, and then have nothing. Yeah. 
it's exciting to be able to reinvent yourself. And a theme that we keep putting up on the podcast is how we've had people in our 70s, 80s. Uh, I think our oldest guest, 88 right now. And, um, you know, they're, they're still starting things, still learning things, creating new things. Um, so I think it's important to, to, to play the long game. Um, I know we're coming up in time, so I wanted to be sure to ask you, is there anything else about you, your career, well-prepped, um, medicine as a whole that you're interested in sharing with our, our learners? Yes. I think we, we should talk about burnout for just a second. Um, I think that, uh, when you're early in your career, you need to start putting into place, um, productivity, I'm going to say productivity hacks. They're not really hacks. You need to put um, systems in place in your practice from the very beginning to try and decrease what are repetitive tasks. And so that means making sure that your staff is working at the top of their license to help you uh, so that your primary job is to see patients make a diff- make difficult decisions and move on. Um, I would just think it doesn't have to be well prepped. There are, there are other tools, but at least consider patient education as one of those things. Patient education right now is is um, the dusty file cabinet with all the handouts and an acrylic board with, you know, dusty brochures. And uh, we, when done properly, we can harness that to our advantage and to patient benefit. I, lo- I love that. That's an inspiring note to end on, especially because the, the point I always like to make is that we will never have enough endocrinologists in the world to treat all the people with diabetes. However, if we can get a, a massively engaged population of, of people, especially early childhood, to truly understand metabolism, food, the importance of eating healthy and exercise, then we can prevent millions of people from getting diabetes or reverse diabetes in people um, and won't need as many endocrinologists. So, and that, And that's a theme that you, I know you keep hitting on, which is that you know, there's a lot of one-on-one interactions that doctors are used to, but there are ways that we can scale our presence using digital tools to move beyond that that old paradigm. That's the way things used to be. And moving forward, you know, we can we can scale ourselves uh, to help patients and to help ourselves. I love it. And you know, best of luck with WellPrep. Thanks for all that you're doing, not only for patient education and engagement, but obviously day-to-day as a practicing provider uh, and for taking the time to be with us on the Raise Line podcast, David. Thanks, Shiv. Appreciate it. And with that, I'm Shiv Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to Raise Line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.